Yo, family, how we doing this morning? Good, good. My name is Pastor Jimmy. If I didn't introduce myself when I first stood up, it's good to see you. I'm one of the pastors here at the Hill Church. If you have a Bible, please open it to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5 is where we will be. Reminded again of the most significant thing that I do as a pastor is what I just did. I ask you to open your Bibles this morning. Hebrews chapter 5. Let's pray. God, what, what, what could we, what should we, what should we gain from your great work? And Lord, we don't even have an answer. But this we know with all our hearts. You've paid our ransom. We've been given everything in the gospel. Lord, it's with great privilege and with great joy. Uh, we do lift our voices again to you before we open up the word. God, we want to be shaped and molded by it. But Lord, that, that requires us submitting ourselves to the word. That requires us hearing the word rightly um, with ears and with hearts that are submitted to you. So God, I pray for us now that you would guard our hearts, our minds. Our minds tend to be in a lot of places in this moment. God, I pray you would focus our minds, our hearts to hear the text, to see Jesus. Um, Lord, that we might see our own sin and our need for Christ every single day and cling to him. God, we want to grow up into maturity in Christ. That's the call of this text. So God, I pray we would think deeply about that this morning and surrender ourselves to you. God, we pray for, we thank you first and foremost. We thank you for Sandra Hand. Thank you for her life. Thank you for her ministry here at the Hill. I thank you for you know, the times I first met her. The one thing she wanted to tell me is that she, she served on the Billy Graham prayer team and she served as a coach in the evangelistic rallies and she would help lead people to Christ. What a, what a blessing she was. God, you gifted her with an amazing gift to paint and thank you for all of that that you gave to her and the way she got to share that with so many here. But God, we thank you for her life. We thank you for her salvation. We thank you, Lord, that she is in the presence of you now. And God, we thank you that, uh, Lord, all these years we can look at a life uh, who held fast to the gospel, who pressed on, who held firm the confession. Um, God, what a testimony, what an example to us. So God, we pray that we would look to, look to you and see her example, God, and we would too would hold firm. We would too would be strong in our faith. God, we pray for her family, we pray for friends, we pray for our body who will mourn her life. But God, we celebrate her life. We thank you for who she was, who she is currently now, rid of ALS, rid of any maladies. She's seeing Jesus face to face and experiencing him, and we thank you for that. God, to that end we pray, to that end we preach, to that end we sing, to that end we gather together this morning. Bless our time this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You would agree, I hope, age and maturity are not necessarily the same thing. Having birthdays does not always equate to growing up. Living in a State of ongoing immaturity is really a silly thing. Like, it can also be a very dangerous thing. Uh, we've all seen the person at age 50 who still tries to keep up with the latest teenage fashions. Their entire wardrobe might be fresh. It might be on point. But on someone else would be a whole lot better. On them it just looks silly. How about the entertainer who has an amazing voice, had a great style about them for 30 years or so ago, but they just can't seem to stop performing. They can't grow up. The old guy on the basketball court 
probably talking about myself now, who persist on thinking he's still got game when he should put the shoes away for sure. A refusal to grow up, a refusal to mature is a silly but often dangerous thing. Uh, my dad often reminded me of this truth growing up, but as I thought over it, one such incident really crystallized this truth for me. I was about 22 years old. I was married, um, a father, and found myself in some trouble due to my immaturity. So what do I do? I did what I only knew to do. I called my dad. And he listened after I explained the situation and listened to all my point of view and the whole thing, and he paid me a visit. He came over to the house. and After again listening to me in person and hearing me through it, he calmly but directly confronted me with these words. Son, you're not a child anymore. He said, you're a husband, you're a father. Act like it. Son, you have a, your problem is you need to grow up. Being older, having a home, having a wife and a child didn't necessarily mean I was at an age of maturity. Maturity required me moving beyond my childish thinking and childish behavior and acting my age, growing up. And though this experience was really painful for me, uh, my father's words were some of the most loving and impactful words he ever spoke to me. Seeing the danger of my actions, my father loved me enough to confront me in my immaturity and call me to a place of maturity. Something I didn't like, something I didn't want, but something I very much needed. In our text this morning, the author of Hebrews is going to take the posture of a loving father. He's going to confront this church regarding the danger of their spiritual immaturity. He's going to exhort them as children, unable to handle solid food of the faith, because they are willfully remaining in a state of spiritual infancy. They need to grow up. Though they are getting older spiritually, they're not maturing spiritually. For to learn to live the Christian life and avoid drifting from the faith, a topic we've addressed many times in this text, we all, like these original audience here, must pursue maturity. We've got to grow up. So my main idea will be simple this morning, and it's this. We must press on to spiritual maturity by taking in the Word of Christ and collectively growing up in Him. We must press on to spiritual maturity by taking in the Word of Christ and collectively growing in Him. I'm going to read our text this morning. It begins in verse, uh, verse 11 of chapter 5, and I'm going to move down into verse 3 of chapter 6, and then I'm going to pause and we'll pick up in verse 4 next week. Really, this entire section hinges together, but there's so much here. We need to do it in multiple settings. So hear the word of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. The author says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, 
Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. For this we will do if God permits. Our text this morning and really on through chapter 6 all the way to the beginning of chapter 7 comprises something of a parenthesis to the author's flow of thought. It's really important that we recognize this if we're going to interpret this portion of Scripture rightly. As you recall, we began a, a new kind of theme concerning the priesthood of Jesus back in verse 14 of chapter 4. And that theme was really further expounded last week, noting the superiority of Jesus' priesthood as the sole source of our complete and eternal salvation. That was our focus last week. And in chapter 7, the author is going to resume this line of thinking with really even greater detail and more emphasis than he has thus far. He's going to really double-click on this high priestly ministry of Jesus. But this morning, we come to a purposeful pause by the author to confront this congregation regarding an issue of the utmost importance. As I said, this, this issue of the danger of spiritual infancy or spiritual immaturity. To do that, he's going to employ a, a rather graphic illustration, rather a, a shocking illustration. He describes many in this congregation as grown-ups living as infants, still dependent upon milk, refusing to grow up. If you were to, a group of you were to leave today after church, as many of you will, and go to lunch and you were to enter a restaurant here in the area and walk in and see the restaurant full of a bunch of grown-ups all sitting at their table with bottles drinking milk, what would you conclude? You would conclude something is off. Something ain't right about this picture. And you'd be absolutely right. These people aren't well. It's by way of this illustration, though, that the author is going to confront this congregation regarding the spiritual state of many in their midst. Something is off. Something is not right. They are grown-ups who have not grown up, spiritually speaking. And this issue is, is not just one of weirdness or improper table etiquette. This is a matter of spiritual life and death. Just as grown-ups can't survive physically on milk alone, neither can we spiritually. I want you to see, brothers and sisters, that our text this morning is really, it really serves as an introduction to one of the strongest and really scariest warnings in the book of Hebrews concerning the danger of spiritual apostasy, of falling away from the Lord. We're going to deal with that text next week. The state of spiritual infancy being described here is no small matter. In fact, it is a slight step away from spiritual ruin. So as a loving, concerned spiritual father, the author pauses this morning to confront this congregation and really any of us experiencing persistent spiritual stagnation this morning. To do this, in verse 11 through 12, the author is going to really, I think, disclose the true diagnosis of this infancy. Then in verses 13 to 14, he's going to provide something of a, a remedy to this spiritual infancy. And then in verses, the, the first three verses of chapter 6, he's going to really call 
uh, all of us this morning to collectively pursue spiritual maturity together. So we begin with this diagnosis in the first uh, two opening verses here, 11 and 12. It's the opening verses, though, of chapter 2, you will recall, we pointed this out along the way, it's been evident something is seriously wrong within this body. Right? For instance, in chapter 2, verse 1, the author exhorted the church to pay, to pay close attention to the message they have heard, lest they drift away from it. Chapter 3, verse 8, he warned them not to harden their hearts like Israel did in the wilderness. Further down, in verse 12 of chapter 3, he told them to take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Chapter 4, verse 1, he called them to fear the Lord, lest they fail to enter God's rest, he said. And then in verse 11 of chapter 4, he called them to strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience as they did. So the author writes with a clear concern for this church. We've seen that as soon as we got out of the first chapter. It's really undeniable so far. But up until this point, the diagnosis really hasn't been all that clear. But now in verse 11, I think he's going to speak directly to the issue. He's going to put his finger on the problem. And the dangerous diagnosis is that these people's hearing has become Doll, the end of verse 11 says, look at it. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, he says, since, because, you have become dull of hearing. Now, about this is a reference to the previous discussion regarding the, the priesthood of Jesus in relation to the line of Aaron and this figure named Melchizedek that we tackled last week. And, and though his... Uh, And through his superior priestly office, Jesus has become the sole source of our complete internal salvation. That's the topic the author wants to continue with. But instead, he has to pause his thought here. And this pause is not due to the complexity of the topic. He pauses because since the people's hearing has become dull. This word dull means to become lazy or lethargic. It's a slothful, it's it's a careless type of hearing. The author is literally saying you have become sluggish or you've become lazy in the ear. Which really makes this topic concerning the priesthood of Jesus hard to explain to them. Their spiritual listening has become characterized by a heavy sleep. Their spiritual ears have become unreceptive. They've become closed. They're refusing to grow up to act their age spiritually. And this is due, he says, to this dullness of hearing. Now, this same word shows up a few verses later in chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. And my translation is translated sluggish. And its, its usage there really helps us get a fuller understanding of this diagnosis. Verse 11 says, We desire that each of you show the same diligence so as to realize that full assurance of hope until the end, that you may not be sluggish, there's the word, but imitators of those who through faith and Patience inherent, in, inherit the promises. So sluggish or dull is here described as the opposite of diligence and eagerness. And it involves not imitating people who hear the promises of God and then respond with faith. What does that teach us? It teaches us that dull hearing is a condition of the heart more than the ear. Right? That it's, a, it's a 
the dull hearing, it's a, it's, a lack, it's, a, it's a heart lacking diligence and effort to embrace the promises of God and respond with faith. It's hearing that enters the ear, goes down into the heart, only to be choked out, refusing to produce any sort of faith. These people's spiritual hearing had become, I don't know, something like our like our hearing during the, the pre-flight instructions of a plane ride. Right? How many times have you heard pre-flight instructions? How many used to be the stewardess actually stood up and did it, now they realize it's such a waste of time, they just put it on a screen. You've probably heard it hundreds, right? If you fly, often you hear it at least twice every time you get on a plane. I've heard it probably hundreds. And yet, how many of us would actually know where to find the oxygen mask? How in the world do we actually use this seat cushion as a flotation device? What do we do with this whistle that they give us on this thing we put around our neck? Well, we'd all be doing the same thing if something happened bad, really, right? We'd be asking for help. How do you use this stuff? Help me out. Why? Because the moment those instructions begin, what? Our hearing goes dull. Our ears become lazy and lethargic as soon as that video interrupts that movie you're trying to watch. The instruction enters the ear. It takes no root in our heart, though. That's exactly what's being described here. This hearing is a hearing without faith. It is lethargic, passive hearing resulting in the words of life and the promises of God simply becoming background noise to their lives. The author further explains the diagnosis in verse 12. Look at it. He says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. By this time, testifies to the fact an unacceptable length of time has passed. These aren't new converts here. These aren't new confessing believers. These aren't people who just began confessing Christ. This is grown folks. And by teachers, the expectation is not for them all to become preachers or pastors. He's saying, no, you ought to be the ones instructing other believers, new believers. You ought to be the mature ones who have not only mastered the ABCs of the faith, but you're the ones passing them on. The word again is especially important here. You need someone to teach you again the basic oracles of God. So these professing believers have already been taught the basics. Yet that's still all they can handle. Why? Because their hearing has become dull. You know, Jesus spoke often regarding the importance of proper hearing. Chapter, Mark chapter 4, parable of the sower. After he gives that famous parable, the differing soils and the seed that's cast, he concludes it by saying, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Jesus says often, pay attention to how you hear. He's not saying, get higher up so you can hear me. His warning in that passage, and the the author of Hebrews' warning, really has nothing to do with audible reception. He's talking about proper spiritual hearing. And proper spiritual hearing requires active, faith-filled hearts eager to hear the Word of God and eager to heed its instructions and obey the Word of God. Brothers and sisters, I honestly, I 
my, my intention this Sunday was to preach from chapter 5, verse 11, down through, middle way through the end of chapter 6. But it's just too much. And such a stern, strong warning we have to deal with next week. But we are going to be dealing with probably the strongest warning in our Bibles next week. There's no soft edge to it at all. And, and it's a warning issued to people professing to be Christians. The author of Hebrews is not talking about some hypothetical group of people who confess that they're not believers. He's confessing to those who show up at church. He's, he, he's warning those who show up to church. He's warning those who profess to be Christians. It's a warning to those among the Christian community. It's a warning to those who take part in the life of the body but who in fact might not be in the kingdom. And this warning is, is set up by this dangerous diagnosis of dull hearing this morning. So we do need to consider what role the Word of God plays in your life. Is it the authority by which you aim to build your life upon? Is it a daily part of your communion with God? Or like the instructions that come upon the, upon the screen as you're taxing down the runway, has it become background noise to your life? Is it pre-flight instructions that simply break in every now and then to disrupt what you have going on in your life? Does this diagnosis fit you this morning? Has your hearing become dull? Are you content with just... Grasping the ABCs of the Christian faith. Are you desiring to grow up and build upon the basic principles of the Christian faith? Because as I read from you the words of Jesus, as I even said from Isaiah as we began this morning, there's a kingdom principle which exists within the Bible concerning our spiritual hearing, concerning our ears. The degree to which we have access to God's Word depends on how we receive and act on what has been given to us. The measure we use, how diligent we are with God's Word, will determine how much insight into it we're further granted. God does not give more to people who have little if they do not truly receive the little that has been given to them. The Lord is ex exceedingly generous, brothers and sisters. But the Lord is no fool. He will not be used. He gives more only to those who truly want what they have already received. Christ will not continue to dispense His grace to those unless we want to be filled, to have our fill, our, our measure with it. But Jesus also will not let us will not let us keep what we have been given if we do not receive it in faith god does not bestow his grace equally upon all people brothers and sisters he gives more to those who have it those who have believed and act upon his word and he takes away what little grace those who do not believe and act on his word currently possess How's your hearing this morning? That's what the text confronts us with. Don't wrongfully presume upon the grace of God in terms of your spiritual hearing. Brothers and sisters, if the most 
word-saturated moment of your week is happening right now. You need to heed this warning. You need to hear this text. You need to consider, has your hearing become dull? Be very careful. I want you to hear me rightly. I, I don't want to, you know, I, I cannot stress enough how important and essential what we're doing this morning is. I don't want to downplay it in any type of way. It's essential that we gather together as the body and hear the preached word. It grows us and shapes us as a body. We need it corporately, we need it individually. Sitting under the weekly preaching of the word is irreplaceable for Christian maturity. So, in no way am I diminishing the importance of the preached word of God. But I want you to hear this. Here's what I think is necessary to say. Is that if, if you leave weekly after hearing the Word of God presented and preached, and that consistently doesn't cause you to want to be in the Word more this week, then you're not hearing the preached Word rightly and correctly. The purpose of the divine Word of God is to know the person of God. To know Him. To commune with Him. To love Him. To walk with Him. And you're hearing, if that's not the case, your hearing may have become dull. That's the diagnosis this morning. It's a dangerous one. For it is connected to falling away. It's connected to drifting away. It's connecting to failing to enter God's rest. It's connected to being overcome by an evil, unbelieving heart. That's the diagnosis, but... What's the remedy to that? I want to look at that next. The remedy for spiritual infancy in 13 and 14. Here at the end, verse 12 and really into verse 13, is where the, uh, we find this illustration regarding milk and immaturity most clearly used. Paul used it in other places in the New Testament. But it's found here as well. And... While the author's confrontation continues, he's going to continue to confront the people, um, embedded is in this rebuke, we do find a remedy as well. Beginning at the end of verse 12, we read, You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Now again, it's a good thing. It's a right thing uh, to give an infant milk. Like it would be a ridiculous and even cruel thing to put a 12-ounce juicy filet mignon in front of an infant and expect them to find nourishment in that. It's ridiculous. However, it's equally ridiculous for a grown-up to carry around a bottle. The milk here is clearly in reference to the basics or the foundational principles mentioned in verse 12 and then spelled out later in, in the first two verses of chapter 6. We'll deal with them there a little bit more. But by referring to them as milk, we need to see the author is in no way diminishing their importance. The basics must be received. Basics must be embraced. Basics must be believed. Every child begins with milk. And every structure is built upon a foundation. However, maturity is defined not by simply mastering the basics, but by building upon the basics. A child's diet must transition to solid food. So... This solid food is higher order of Christian teaching, like Christ's priesthood. That is hard for this group to handle. It's hard for him to explain it to them. 
It's hard to explain because their dull hearing has left them unskilled or unacquainted is the word in the word of righteousness. The end of verse 12 says there. This word of righteousness is a word about about righteous living. It's a word concerning reasoning about what's right and distinguishing good from evil, as the text later says. But given the context, this word or revelation of righteousness is more than that. It's a word concerning the superiority of Jesus' person and His work through His priestly ministry, which is the true path of righteousness itself. Apart from embracing this truth, one cannot discern and follow the right course of living. But in verse 14 is where I think this remedy emerges. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. There's a capacity here that's being emphasized. Those who are mature possess the capacity to discern what is right and true. How do they get this capacity or this discernment? By constant practice, it says. By taking the truth they have received and persistently living it out. By taking the basics, the foundation of the faith and and building upon them. Exercising those realities in their life. The spiritual infant, equipped only with the basics of the faith, lacks the hardware to discern or to distinguish between what is spiritually good and what is destructive for their lives. Discernment is essential for our Christian lives. Discernment is a higher order of thinking, though, which is only reached by training and experience. So spiritually speaking, we might say something like, discernment is like a theological grid. It helps us make all kinds of decisions about life. Spiritual discernment requires the proper foundation, but is derived by a person who builds on that foundation. Nobody wants a heart surgeon, right? Who in the middle of surgery needs to stop and uh, like go open his intro to cardiology book and read some basics again. Right? No, you want surgeons who not only mastered the basics of cardiology, but have developed discernment through years of practice and experience of putting those basics into practice. The same is true for Christian maturity. So what is the remedy for dull hearing? What is the remedy for spiritual maturity? It's being skilled in the word of righteousness. It's obtaining spiritual discernment through training. It's putting into constant practice the word of God. It's taking the basics of the faith. It's embracing them. It's cherishing them. It's loving them. It's being trained by them. through living our lives in light of them. Again, the reference here to basic doctrines or elementary principles in no way communicates a lack of importance of the gospel. It actually does just the opposite. It communicates the essential importance of them. Entering into a doctoral program apart from going to elementary school ain't going to cut it. And building a beautiful, elaborate structure means nothing without a proper foundation. We are currently in the process of putting up shade sails behind our church. That is, inclu- that is requiring us, a group of men yesterday, we, we, we got a bunch of um, heavy equipment. 
we're trying to take 16 foot six by sixes and put them into the ground. Well, if you've noticed, there's a couple rocks behind our church. So we dug five holes pretty well. We got down about four feet. That's where we need to be. The other four, five holes, we ain't done so well. We're about, some of them are about 18 inches. Some of them are about seven inches. We're still digging. Now, we could just say, you know what? Just, just put concrete, don't worry about it. That'd be foolish. There'd be no foundation upon which to hold the structure. They would topple and fall right away. The author in no way here is diminishing the importance of the basics to our faith. We don't graduate from the gospel. This remedy here requires us really thinking through the elementary principles of our faith. So we have to really think through and build upon the gospel, the good news of who God is and what He has done in His Son. It's been clear through the book of Hebrews thus far. From the opening verse, the author has been laying out just what is the gospel. That it is that God, a holy and righteous God, would send His Son, His one and only Son. And He would send His one and only Son to live a life that we could not live. To die a death that we deserve for our sin. It laid out very clearly as we've been thinking through, through the priesthood set, sit, through the priesthood system through the sacrificial nature of it that we cannot enter into the presence of a holy God due to our sin we need a mediator we need a means for God to give us access to him he's done that in his son he sent his son to come to live to be slain to spill his blood upon a cross paying the payment for our sin he died he rose again and he offers us forgiveness for him we never graduate from the gospel it is the basics of our identity it is the basic of who we are it is the thing we cling to daily but maturity means we have to put that into practice it's not just an intro to Christianity book that sits on our shelf the basics of the Christianity have to have legs and feet in reality to become mature for us to become mature we must be trained by them we embrace them, we love them, we cherish them. And as a result, we build our lives upon them. We're trained by putting the truth of the gospel into practice in every day of our life and every season we go through. How does the gospel inform our singleness? How does the gospel inform our marriage and parenting? How does the gospel inform this painful divorce I've been through? How does the gospel inform our sexual sin? How does the gospel inform my anger and my lack of patience? My emotional struggles. How does the gospel inform us to walk as a body through the mourning of a sister in the faith? Maturity requires us, brothers and sisters, knowing, embracing, loving, cherishing the basic reality of the gospel. We're sinners in need of God's grace daily. He's a great king who loves us and has richly lavished his grace upon us in his life, death, and resurrection. And He's given us His Spirit to walk with us daily. We cherish those truths by building on those truths. It's by constant practice that we are trained to discern what is good, what is right. We do that through the Gospel. The remedy, brothers and sisters, is discerning, is knowing the truths of the Gospel and putting those into practice. There's a call here too. And 
we come to chapter 6, verse 1, there's a therefore there. And this therefore really marks a call for us to press on to spiritual maturity. It says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instructions about washing, the laying out of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now, these verses serve as a segue really into the warning next week we're going to deal with. So I'm going to comment briefly on those and make some application, but we're going to pick them up again next Sunday. It's at least important to say that leaving here speaks not of any sort of abandonment but a pressing beyond what he calls the elementary doctrines of Christ or the basic principles. I think that's the exact same thing he just mentioned. I think he's talking about the basic package of Christian conversion. So repentance and faith is straightforward. There is no Christianity, there is no Christian faith without you repenting and placing faith in Christ, from you turning from yourself and your sin and turning to Christ by faith. There is no Christianity without that. There is no other way, there is no other door to enter into. Repentance and faith in Christ. Becoming a Christian begins with this. But next then there's this washing and laying on of hands which most likely speaks to the symbolic nature of baptism and the receiving of the Holy Spirit which accompanies one's repentance and faith. And then lastly, there's this resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment which is promised to all of us at the end of our life as we know Christ. We have this hope. Those are the basic realities of the doctrines of Christ here. It is the basic message of the gospel, the basic, basics of our faith, which we must all know. But again, we can't stay there. To avoid, next week, to avoid spiritual apostasy, we must all pursue spiritual maturity in Christ. That's the call here. When we talk about maturity in Christ, we're talking about discipleship. Uh, discipleship is one of those top topics that it's essential to our faith, but one we, I think we tend to overcomplicate, and one we tend to bring all kind of differing definitions and ideas to the table about. And I think we overcomplicate it, but often we individualize it so much to fit our own preferences. Discipleship, we could say, I'm going to be basic here, but growing in the words and ways of Jesus. A simple but profound definition I like is helping others to follow Jesus by doing them deliberate spiritual good. That can happen through one-on-one engagement, yes, and it should. But that's just one aspect of discipleship. Growing in maturity in Christ happens within the life of the body in many, many, many ways. Discipleship is a body responsibility. I want you to notice again the collective nature of the author's call here. He says, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity. Now, as I've said, this let us, we see it multiple places throughout Hebrews. There is a rhetorical reason for this third person language, for sure. He's he's being an effective communicator. Sometimes it's easier for someone to hear a hard word if you soften the brunt of it and really... Uh, soften the brunt of the rebuke to the third person. And then by doing this, he, he widens the warning, as we're going to see next week. So there's, there's a rhetorical reasoning for this for sure, but there's a theological reason for this. Maturity does not happen in isolation. 
Maturity is bound up with the church, brothers and sisters. It's bound up with life in the body. Discipleship involves us taking part and helping others take part in the means of God's grace He has provided to us through His body. What does that mean? It means maturity in Christ, growing up as disciples, while it's not limited to simple life within the local church, it doesn't happen outside of it either. Without it, I should say. It's bound up with it. So I get the statement a lot. It's a good statement. It's a wonderful, God-honoring statement. I want to be discipled. But that, that, that statement, oftentimes when you press on what's behind that statement, it is a deliberate disconnection from a lot of things in the bodies because I want to preferentially be discipled this way. Discipleship begins with consistent partnership within the body of Christ. Let's don't overcomplicate it. It involves consistent attendance and worship. Consistent sitting under the Word. Consistent rightly hearing the Word preached, rightly responding to what is preached. It involves regular, consistent singing with brothers and sisters. Singing the truth of the Gospel with other believers. For the hill, it involves participation in a community group. Where you're studying the Word of God with other people. You're taking ownership of other believers. You're being involved in reaching others for Christ. Sharing the gospel with other people. For members of the hill, it, it involves a D group here, something we do. Where, where other believers literally work through a daily Bible reading plan. We journal through it. We meet together for accountability, for prayer. So while discipleship, yes, can go way beyond life in the body, it cannot happen with a life that's just totally connected from the body. Discipleship, maturity in Christ, is a collective call for the body of Christ. And notice it says this, this will, we will do if God permits. Now we may be prone to just pass by over this little phrase. But as one author points out, this is not some pious cliche on the author's part. He's laying this out kind of as a pause in between what he's fixing to say. Um, responsibility for spiritual infancy, responsibility for being immature, falls directly in our laps. It's our fault if that's the case. Dull hearing is our fault. And that's a conclusion we cannot miss. And just like this original audience, we should be able to grasp the truth of the Word of God. Their dull hearing, their dull hearing, their spiritual sluggishness was their fault as it is ours. And furthermore, this call for us to press on to maturity is equally, is equally our responsibility. It's given to us. We are to press on. However, anyone who proceeds to spiritual maturity does so because of the gracious allowance of God in their lives. And these two realities, they are complementary all throughout the Bible. We must press on to spiritual maturity. But we do so knowing that our maturity comes, slow, comes solely by the permission of our gracious and loving God. He raises us up. And He raises us up according to His prescribed means that He gives us in Christ. In Christ alone. There is no such thing as a static Christian. 
There is no such thing as a static Christianity. That is the assumption behind every single verse in this letter. Stagnation is immature. Standing still is drifting. As we've said, the the current, the waters of this world are not standing still. We do not live, you do not live and wake up every day in a pond. You live in a river with a current moving quickly away from Christ. So for us to stand still, for us to set our feet in one place is to be moving somewhere. All of us are either growing in Christ, pursuing Him and His Word and His people, or we're drifting and in danger from going away from Him. The author brings that truth to bear on all of us this morning by forcing us to consider our hearing. How are your spiritual ears this morning? Has your hearing become dull? If it has, we need to consider again the beautiful basics of the gospel. If you're not a Christian this morning, see Christ. See Him in all His glory. See Him as the Son, the Supreme One, who was sent to die for sin. He's the one who offers you forgiveness for cleansing eternal life with God. See Him this morning. If you're a Christian this morning, and this text confronts your heart because it hits your ears in a hard way, look to Christ this morning. You're not going to mature. You're not going to move forward apart from Christ's enabling grace. Lean to Him. Love Him. See the basic, beautiful elements of the Gospel again this morning. Don't get over the fact that you are a sinner and deserve nothing but the wrath of God. But this morning, if you're a Christian, you sit lavished by the grace of God, wrapped in His righteousness, secure in your place now and secure in your eternal reality. Turn your heart to Christ again. When your hearts turn to Christ again, your ears will be made right again. Take part. What does that mean? That means take part in God's grace and the means that He's given us through His body. Press on to maturity. Seek Him in His Word. Find Him amongst the saints. Walk with other believers and grow in Christ. Let's grow up together, church as we rest in the assurance of God's grace at work in us. Let's pray. Father, our, my hearing, uh, let me begin with my own heart, my, my hearing is distracted by so many things. I sometimes have overcome with the the lie 
that there is something more valuable than Christ. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive us. Lord, we, we don't often grow up in Christ because we don't take time to see the value of Christ. And oftentimes that is hindered because we see so many wrong things as valuable. God, help us to see you and the Son, the Supreme One, the full and final revelation of the Father, the One who upholds the universe by the word of your power, the One who is the heir of all things, but the One who after making purifications for sin sat down at the right hand of the majesty of the Father on high. God, let us see that the purification we need for our sin is a completed work. It's a finished thing in Christ. Let us see the security in Him. Let us see the beauty in Him. And Lord, do help us to fix our hearts and our minds on Him that we might hear Him. So God, as the Word was preached today, it falls in many places. God, might it fall on soft soil. Might as we sing now, as we respond God, might it reach down and respond to hearts this morning that are receptive, that are not lethargic, that are eager to respond with faith. And God, whatever we need to confess, whatever we need to repent of, make us be brothers and sisters quick to do it, to find the washing work of Christ upon our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.